All righty, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 16, and we're going to pick it back up where we left off the last time we had uh, covered the first four verses. And Paul, coming from Jerusalem, him and Silas, having letters of freedom and liberty to the Gentiles, that they did not have to worry about the issue of circumcision nor keeping the law. And yet he meets Timothy, and, and by recommendation, he takes Timothy, who is the son of a Jewess and a Gentile father, and has him circumcised. We talked about that the last time. Why was, why Timothy? Well, because Timothy was a Jew. He was considered a Jew because his mother was Jewish. Had it been on the other foot, had his father been Jewish and his mother a Gentile, Paul would never have asked him because they would not have considered Timothy to be Jewish. That's just the way it is. It's the way it still is. And so in order to keep the peace as it was, some people, we talked about this at, at length the last time, and, and that some people look at the issue that James and the other elders in Jerusalem laid down and, and it, like somehow they were uh, you know, giving us liberty as far as the law was concerned, except for these necessary things. That somehow is a reinstitution of a minor, you know, uh, law uh, regarding things eaten, strangled, and those type of things. And really nothing could have been further from the truth. James and the elders knew that uh, Paul and Silas and them would be ministering to a mixed crowd. They knew that they were going to be out there reaching the Jews and the Gentiles because the Gentiles was really who they were going after. But there was a mixed crowd. And so in reality, it was Paul's way of just keeping the peace. 1 Corinthians 9.22, you can write it down if you haven't gotten it already. And Paul says, to the weak I became weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that by all means I might save some. And I like that. I mean, it's one of those things where we want to be able to connect with people. We, we don't want there to be stumbling blocks. And, and it's undoubtedly the stumbling blocks come anyway. But why inflict it yourself? Timothy was a young man. He was a young disciple. He'd been a Christian for five years. And Paul had, at this point, taken him under his wing. And was really showing him the right way of doing things. If you're going to be a missionary, if you're going to be a missionary, then be a missionary to win souls. And if you're going to win souls, don't create your own problem or your own barrier. And so often, that's what happens. I love K.P. Johannan. I hope you guys know who that is. K.P. Johannan is an Indian uh, you know, in India, uh, but he's also the head of uh, Asia for Christ. And, you know, with 35, 40,000 missionaries under his direct guidance. And I remember one time I was at a pastor's conference and KP was there and, and uh, he used to come to all the Calvary things. And I remember coming out of lunch and he was just standing there and I said, KP, I mean, because he had me fired up. I wanted to go. He had me fired up. He was talking about all the lower class people because they have a caste system over there. But these people were coming to Jesus and like 60, 70,000 people a day. And they needed help, you know, baptizing them and all that. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm buying my ticket, you know, I'm going, you know. <laughs> and I told KP, I says, man, I said, I want to go to India. He said, uh, of course, in his little Indian voice, well, why would you want to do that? 
And I said, I want to come and help. He says, I tell you what. He says, send the money. He says, I could put five missionaries in the field who speak the language, who eat the food, who are of the same culture, who know Jesus Christ for the price of your plane ticket. And I'd never thought of that before. And I thought, wow, you know, because I would go over there. And of course, I'm not of the same culture. And I might wind up doing things that do cause a blockade or those type of things. So the issue really is to keep the peace. This is what Paul was really trying to do with Timothy when he had Timothy circumcised. He suggested to Timothy, it wasn't a keeping of the law at all. He was saying, look, this is going to be an issue. If we get around the boys and our Jewish brethren and they spy out your liberty that you have in Christ, it's going to raise a ruckus with some of them because they're weak in the faith. We don't want to have to go. We want to be able to reach them for Christ. So it was a peacekeeping mission, so to speak, in having Timothy circumcised. In Romans 12, 18, Paul said this, If it be possible, as much as it lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And, and I would emphasize, he says, if it be possible. If it be possible, live peaceably with all men. That's really what the bottom line is. It's having, it's having peace among the brethren. There's always going to be those issues that come up. Believe me, I've had to deal with them over the many, many years I've been in ministry. There's always going to be issues that come up, non-essential stuff, that can turn into a big deal in some people's eyes. But that doesn't need to be. I mean, in those particular cases, I've always told my deacons and elders, I said, look, just go with the flow. It, 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 you know, if you get asked to go minister in a particular church or denomination that maybe you're not affiliated with, and you get there and they have a custom that we don't find in the New Testament, but yet it's nothing detrimental, then just go with it, you know. Don't create a ruckus over something that doesn't need to have a ruckus created over it. Just go with the flow in those particular issues. But on the other hand, when it comes to things of conscience and of faith, then I would encourage everybody to stand your ground. You have to. We, we're especially today that we're living in. When the circumcision issue came up about the Gentiles, and certain Jews wanted to implement the law, and circumcision upon the Gentiles. It was Paul who stood his ground, as you remember. Paul stood up. He confronted them. No, this isn't right. This isn't the gospel. Even Peter, when Peter eventually, and we'll get to that, when Peter begins to backslide into a works relationship and begins there at the church of Antioch to separate himself from the Gentile believers, he creates a division as though there's a division in Christ, which we know there is not, between Jew and Gentile. But he creates it, and Paul withstood him to the face, he said, because Peter was to be blamed. When it's a matter of conscience, when it's a matter of scriptural conscience, let me put it that way, then we should absolutely stand our ground. We're living in an era that the Bible is being challenged at every level, in almost every denomination, and some non-denominational churches don't even use it half the time. They hold it up in their hand and they say pledges to it, but they don't really read it, you see, or, or necessarily even go by it. 
And a lot of denominations are going that direction. Paul's emphasis was to keep peace. And we want to keep peace among the brethren. We do want that. But keep it in mind that unity, we often associate peace with unity. And unity at any cost will always lead to heresy. It always does. Because somebody's going to compromise on the word of God. And I would never encourage anybody to do that. If it's a matter of just, hey, it's a tradition, you know, sprinkling of babies and that kind of stuff, it's, like, it's no big deal. I mean, you know, to me, it's, it's, not a, it's not that big of an issue. But if it is a matter of faith, according to Scripture, if it's a matter of, you know, that, that, that has importance to it, not only in salvation, but also in the issue of discipleship then I would tell you to stand your ground. Stand your ground. Paul stood his ground. Peter stood his ground when he had to. We should all do that. So just to be absolutely clear, on the matter of conscience and faith, if it's a matter of principle and conviction, if it's a matter of scriptural correctness, then stand your ground. If it's no big deal, just go with the flow. And that's really what Paul's doing here with Timothy. That issue of circumcision for Timothy was not, I know to us, and if you're a Gentile, you're probably going, yeah, well, you know... <laughs> It might not sound like a big deal to you, but to some people it would be. It would be. There's no doubt about that. And we're going to talk just a little bit here about that. Because Timothy doesn't just, as it appears, he doesn't just surrender to this superior and say, sure, I'll go do that. Because it's, it's a pretty important thing. As a sub-point, before we move on to verse 5. I want to talk just a little bit about the relationship that Paul had with Timothy at this particular time. It's a fresh one. You know, Timothy, like I said before, had been a Christian now for about five years. He got saved under Paul's first missionary journey. And now Paul's back, and, and Timothy's had five years to mature. Timothy has a good reputation. He even had recommendations to, to Paul saying, hey, this is a good kid. This, this guy you want to take with you. So now they establish a new type of relationship. No doubt, Timothy was a disciple of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. But now he is going to enter into a relationship with Paul that is one of disciple and discipler. And it's important. If you're going to have disciples, you must have a discipler. Somebody has to make those disciples. If there's going to be a student, there must be what? A teacher. There just has to be. It's common sense. Now, the thing about Paul, which I think is interesting, and I want to I point this out, like I said, before we move on. And you can write these down as I'm saying, if you don't have to turn there. But in 1 Corinthians 4.16, I want you to hear what Paul the Apostle said about himself. Now, this man was a discipler. This was a man who made many, many disciples in his life. Matter of fact, that was mostly what he did. He would go in and preach the gospel to the unbelievers. Those that believed, he would disciple. He would teach them in order to bring them into maturity and to send them out to teach other men also. This is what he did. But here's what Paul said about himself in 1 Corinthians 4.16. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Wow. 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And just as a coup de grace to make my point about Paul's opinion about this, 
In Philippians 4, 9, here's what he said. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace will be with you. Wow. Some would say, what an arrogant statement. What an arrogant. I actually heard a lady say that one time. Paul was arrogant that he would tell people to follow him. Or, or, it was a matter of fact. You see, Paul was confident, not in his own flesh, but he was confident in his relationship with Jesus Christ. Even though at the end of his life, he would, he would say that I have not yet attained. What did he mean by that? Paul meant that he was still a flawed individual. God always uses inferior vessels or imperfect vessels to do his perfect will. He always has and he always will. We're flawed. We're perfect in Christ, but in reality, we're flawed individuals. And Paul was a flawed individual. He was not like he was a man made perfect in the flesh. He wasn't. He even said, I've not yet attained. But yet he freely told his followers many times, follow me. Be an imitator of me. And the God of peace shall be with you. The fact is, is that if you're going to have disciples, you have to be a discipler. And in reality, we are all disciplers. We're making disciples, whether you realize it or not, whether you want to or not. You really are. 2 Corinthians 3, 2, the Apostle Paul writing to that group later on is a correction letter, but he said this, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Everything that we say or do as Christians is known and read of all men. So my challenge to you is this, whether you're sitting here listening by radio. Can you say with the Apostle Paul, to those who have both heard and seen you in action, be followers of me. Is your relationship with Jesus Christ so blessed, your life in him so sweet, that you would want others to experience what you have in Jesus by telling them to be imitators of you. Not only your words, not only imitate your words, but be an imitator of your lifestyle in Jesus, both private and public. The fact is, my friends, is that's really what we should be able to do without hesitation. So often I've heard Christians, you know, say, don't follow me. Keep your eyes on Jesus, you see. And they say that as a disclaimer. Because what they're saying is, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I've made. And I understand that. You know, because we look at ourselves, we understand we're flawed. But when Paul says this, when Paul says, be followers of me, brethren, even as I am followers of Christ, as a follower of Christ, or, or, or what you have seen and heard in me, that do and the God of peace will be with you. He's not saying that he wants you to implement or, or to uh, duplicate any mistake that he had made. He was a flawed man. He was a man of like passions. I love the fact that he said that about himself. What he's saying is that what I have in Jesus, the dependency, the total dependency that I have on Jesus Christ 
I want you to experience that. Regardless of my flaw. See, I love the fact that Paul and the apostles were normal men. If you met one of them today and they were of our time, I bet you some of you might even question their Christianity. Why? Because you would find them to be exceedingly normal. They would be normal men, but they would be men who exceptionally love Christ. We don't live in that kind of area now. I mean, we don't, we don't grasp this as believers. And so we, we fake it a lot. And I'm not picking on anybody. And I, and I know even as a pastor for years, I tried not to do it because I always tried to be the same behind the pulpit as I was at home or anywhere else. I, I didn't want to wear different hats. And many pastors, and I'm telling you, almost anybody, and a lot of Christians in the pews, feel they have to do that. You know, they have their their home person, that they are at home with the wife, but then when they step into the church or into the pulpit, they're an entirely different person. Oh, and there's people who, when they're at home, they're different than they are when they come to church. They put on their Sunday face, you see. We don't call it our Sunday best for nothing. And, and, and people do that, and I understand that. But we really shouldn't. I remember one of the best illustrations of this was one time when I was doing sales for the laboratory. And I may have told it to you, but for the sake of redundancy, I'll say it again. You know, because it needs to be. I was out in this town, I won't mention the town, but we were out, in, it's a small town out in Illinois, we had a wastewater plant, of course we owned the laboratory, we did that kind of work, so we stopped in, we didn't have these people. And somebody had told me that the man there who ran the place was a pastor, and I thought, hey, got something in common with the guy. You know, I thought, well, this is, I got a shoe in on this one, you know what I mean? <laughs> Bible says, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith, right? So I go in there and and uh, we struck up a conversation, and my partner was with me. And I said, so uh, I heard you're a pastor, you know. I said, yeah. And the guy went off to deep end with me. And he was like, you know, don't, don't bring that up. He says, you know, when I'm here, I'm wearing my, my superintendent hat. This is exactly what he said. I'm not, I'm, I, I do not exaggerate on this. And when I'm at the church, I wear my pastor. I mean, don't try to use that. You know, and I was like, I was blown away. And so I, I realized at that moment I had probably lost any chance of picking this up as a client. So I felt privileged to preach. And the guy was much older than I was, so I tried to be as gentle as I could as I was speaking to a father. And I says, tell me how you do that, brother. How do you do that? Because that just seems contradictory to me. I said, because I've never been able to do such a thing. How do you put on one hat and then another hat, and you, you've got a different personality. Is this despisable, the way that you're speaking to me now? Is this the way you speak at church? And I quoted the verse. The Bible says, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. As far as I can see right now, bro, as, even as, a, as an elder in the church, you're a hypocrite. But I love you, and I'll talk to you later. It wasn't too many days after that I got a phone call from him. And he asked me to stop back in. So I did. And he repented. And he said, you're absolutely right. He said, you know, that was one of the dumbest things. I said, I just was shocked by it. I'm sorry you came to this place in your life in Christ where you think you've got to put on death. I said, brother, you don't have to do that. We need to live our lives in Christ as real as possible. You're people. You're humans. Now, every time you say that, when you hear people say, well, I'm normal, 
you know, they, they, I don't know whether sometimes in Christianity we think we're jumping to sin issues. We're not talking about that. We're talking about being a normal person. Because the world sees us, they look at, we come to these churches and our, we, our churches have stained glass. They think somehow we're, you know, we walk around with a halo over our head. You know, and it's like, no, man, you know. We are like men, as Paul the Apostle ran in and forbade the madness of the people. You remember, he said, we are men of like passion. You remember that? He said, we're men of like passion. He, what he said was, we're just like you. The only difference is we have placed all of our reliance upon Jesus Christ. We put no confidence in our flesh. We're trusting in him. That's where we need to be. And we can come to that place. And I think that as Christians, we should know the word of God in our heart, in our mind. It should be flowing from our lips because of the abundance of the heart, the mouth should speak. But at the same time, I think we live our lives in Jesus. You know, the, it was, I'm thinking the, one of the old dead guys, uh, preachers, you know, he said, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and do as you please. And I like that statement, because so often Christians, when you quote that, they think, well, you know, do as you please. Well, yeah, because if you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and strength, you can do what you please because you're going to do what pleases him. It's not a works thing. It's a total dependency thing upon all that Jesus Christ has done. You know, he lived that perfect life, imputed his righteousness to us because he did what was right. And then he was on the cross, and he, 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 you know, he's done all these things in our stead and sits at the right hand of the Father. I mean, listen. I would love to tell other people, and I do quite often, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, I know that, and I've made my share of mistakes. I've had my share of sin in my life, in and outside of Jesus. But I would never hesitate to tell somebody, follow me as I follow Christ, and the God of peace will be with you. That's not arrogance. That's a fact. Why? Because Doug Copen is totally dependent upon all that Jesus did. Totally. I just had recently had a family show up at my house I hadn't seen in seven years. I used to be their pastor. And, you know, it was interesting because they look around and they see how God has blessed me and how God has poured out his abundant grace upon my life. Regardless of where I have been in the last seven years, and I know for some, not that particular couple, but for some people it astounds them because, you know, they, they know Doug Copen is a normal man. He's a normal guy. If, you, if anybody who's ever sat and listened to me for any amount of time, I'm, I'm as real as you get. I'm as real as a pastor can be because I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to put on a face at church that I don't use at home. I just can't do it. What you see is what you get. Now, you might not like what you see, and you might not like what you get. But what you see and what you get is real. It's genuine. It's not phony. I am a man of like passion just as you. And if there's any difference in, in us, it's maybe I depend a little more on Jesus than what some people do. I remember a long time ago when I was a young, young disciple. And I think it was Don McClure who said, one of the things he loved about Chuck was that Chuck Smith, 
just expected God to bless him. And I thought, wow, I can do that. I'll just expect God to bless me. And guess what? He does. <laughs> Despite the fact. I mean, I love the fact that nothing we have in Christ is predicated upon anything that I do. Because then it would mean that I had to have earned it. Or that I deserved it somehow. But it's totally predicated upon all that Jesus Christ has done. And continues to do for us at the right hand of the Father. That's an easy thing for me. How much more easier does it have to get? So, we want to be able to do that. That's a challenge that I have for you. I mean, you know, let's not be the type of Christians who go, well, you know, don't look at me. <laughs> you know, even Peter and John, when they came to the beautiful gate, they saw the man who was crippled. What was the first thing they said? Look at us. Look on us. And, and, and we are so hesitant to do that because we, when we say that, we're going, wait a minute, I'm flawed. You know, I'm flawed. Yeah, I know. And you always will be. But God loves you anyway. And if you're, if you're in Christ, he's chosen you. And think about this. When you think about the sovereignty of God, and I know I say this repeatedly, and I probably will till I go home to be with the Lord, because it needs to be reminded. The church needs to be reminded. Think about all the sin. And I'm not telling you to dwell on I'm telling you just take a second and think about how sinful your life has been, not just before Christ. Let's get real and down to earth here for a moment. Not just, it, not just before Christ, but in Christ, how sinful it's been. Now think about this. God knew that before he ever chose you. And he chose you anyway. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave. And that's the Lord, man. That's the beauty of the vicarious life that we have in Jesus because I can point to him. The devil will want to point out my flaws. So the enemy will come in and go, yeah, well, you remember the time you did this and you said this and you said, I go, yeah, go talk to Jesus. You go talk to the Lord because you know what? In Christ, I'm perfect. In Christ, I have it all. In Christ, I am blessed. In Christ, I am everything. And I choose to focus on that. And I will tell people, you know what? You want the God of peace to be with you? Follow me. Follow me. Because I'm following Jesus. And that's all I'm doing. Be totally dependent upon the Lord. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, I mentioned all these things. And I know this is my introduction. <laughs> We're almost there. But I wanted to go back and kind of recap this because last week we didn't really get to it. But I said all that to say this, that when the average reader reads this portion of this passage of Scripture, you know, about Timothy, it comes across as Timothy was just submitting, as it will, to a superior. Paul says, yeah, you know what? You're getting circumcised. I know I've got this letter over here, but you're going down. Into it kind of sounds like Timothy's just like, oh, okay. You know, I'll, I'll do it. And nothing could have been further from the truth. Because of their relationship of disciple and disciple, Timothy had submitted himself to the process of discipleship. He was given to that. Even though Paul's request for him to be circumcised was not only an inconvenience for Timothy, but it was extremely invasive in, his, in its nature and would have caused substantial physical pain. Timothy agreed to the request 
because he knew Paul's intent was to keep the peace. He knew Paul's intent was to win people to the Lord and not to allow something. So all Timothy was doing was submitting to the process of discipleship. I remember over the years, and then I'll move on. Throughout the years, when I've taught on the issue of discipleship, disciplers and disciples, it's always inevitable that I'll have somebody within the church would come up to me and say, Pastor Doug, will you disciple me? And my answer was always the same. Yes, absolutely. If, if you're willing to submit to that, I'm willing to do it. And a lot of times it produced some great men of God, which are still in the ministry to this day. Other times, and I hate to say probably most of the time, <laughs> what it produced was a mixed reaction. I remember uh, one of the last ones, young man, well, he was about 30-something, he came up to me and, and he said, man, I, I, I just, you know, would you, would you disciple me? And I said, sure. Uh, be over at my office, you know, uh, Monday morning, you know, at 5 o'clock in the morning. That's what time I get in my office. So be over there. And uh, this was at my house. I had an office at my house and went to church. So be over there. Okay. So he came over and I had a beautiful office of, you know, at my house. And it was a big wing back chair. It sat in a corner. And he said, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to sit right there. And so he did. And so he sat down and I opened up my computer and I turned around. And I grabbed the books that I needed that day and I began to study. And, you know, uh, we went through a day of that. He sat there for probably six, seven hours. And uh, I did feed him, you know, so it wasn't like I, you know, we did eat lunch, and he asked me a few minor questions, and he just kept sitting there. So we went through about three or four days of that. And, and then after that, he goes, Doug, he says, uh, I'm just asking, what, 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 what do you want me to do? I said, well, because you know, I was in the middle of putting a sermon together. I said, well, I'll tell you what, the grass needs cut. You know, you want to go cut the grass, and mower's underneath the deck, and uh, he wasn't really feeling that. And... Uh, <laughs> And he got mad. He goes, I don't understand what you're doing. I said, I'm discipling you. You said you want to be a disciple. I'm discipling you. I said, what did you think it meant? Well, I thought we'd study the Bible together. I said, I teach through the Bible five times a week at this church. Through the entire Word of God. What more am I going to teach you? No. Discipleship is how we do what we do. That's what discipleship is. When Jesus discipled the 12, what did they do? They traveled with him. They slept in the same room, sometimes on the same dirt ground. Jesus said, you know, the birds have their nests and the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. They were with him day and night. And I've had some men who were willing to do that. And those men are still in the ministry. But so often, not many are. And not many people have ever been through that kind of discipleship. So this is what Timothy was submitting to, that type of relationship. Look at verse 5. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in numbers daily. Wow, the power of the early church. It's plain to see that the early church was a church that was overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we're going to see, the church was actually under you know, the direct governing of the Holy Ghost, not just the presence, of him, but he's directing them, pointing them in the way to go. This is really the reason for the success of that church. The early church, he was growing by, you know, exponentially, you know, 
every day, it says, that they were increasing. It's really too bad that today the church has substituted the work of the Holy Spirit for programs and for their own work. And it's really sad, but, they, but this is what they've done. You know, if you go back, and, and, and you can just, I'll tell you what, turn back there with me for a minute. Let me take you back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, and let's just look at this for a moment, because it's pertinent to what we're talking about. The early church was a powerful church, a church that was directed and moved by the Holy Spirit. They walked in it, and their numbers increased daily. No programs. I mean, keep this in mind. They had nothing. They had no programs. They had no modern conveniences, and yet they grew exponentially. In the book of Galatians, Paul the Apostle eventually will write back to those who had moved back into a works relationship. And he said to them in chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. Are you so foolish, verse 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? I'll tell you, if the Apostle Paul were here today, he could write that very epistle to the entire church of Jesus Christ. I could see him saying, oh foolish church, having begun in the spirit, are you now going to make it perfect by the flesh? Because that's what they try to do. It's exactly what they, you see program after program, all man-made, all designed to hype the flesh. They're on television. They're on radio. <laughs> They're in our town. They're all over. They're everywhere. You could even hire these guys. They'll come into your church and they'll set up an expansion program, a church growth program. And of course, they'll take a small nominal fee for that or maybe a percentage, you know. And it's guaranteed, you see, to bring in. And they'll, they'll put up the advertising. We're going to talk a little bit about that later. But they'll have these little advertising campaigns. They send cards out and, hey, come and enjoy a cup of coffee. And, they, you know, and it's got a little picture of a cafe on it. I mean, I'm serious. I've seen all this stuff. Or you get the real crazy stuff like the one I got the other day where there's little prayer rugs in them. Have you ever seen those crazy ones? You know, little prayer. How do these people get my number? I want to know that. You know? Oh, dear Jesus, I'd like to talk to the boy who sent that to me. You know? I had a standing rule at Calvary Chapel. If any paper came in and it said Reverend Copen on it, there was a special file just for those papers. You know, you know where it was at? That's right, in the wastebasket. Reverend Copen. Yeah, the only thing, the only name that's reverenced is that of Jesus Christ. And you can call me pastor, you can call me, don't call me late for lunch, you know what I mean? But the fact is, is that's just crazy. But these guys, they have all these crazy things that they do, and it's all man-made, it's all, but yet the early church, they walked in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they grew exponentially. Do we really believe that people are different now than they were then? Do we think that the world, <laughs> no, people are still in need of the gospel. People are still a falling, they're in a fallen nature outside of Jesus Christ. They still need the gospel. In some ways, in some places, I'll tell you, the world was a lot worse then, a lot more chaotic. I know it's crazy now, but there's been periods of time. But my only point is, is that mankind is mankind. And God is still God, and Jesus is still Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Why do we want to try to perfect in the flesh what can only be done in the spirit? I have no idea, but we keep trying. Verse 6, and when they had gone through Phrygia and in the region of Galatia and were forbidden, you need to take note of this, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to uh, Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came to Troas. Hmm. This always reminds me of Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his path. You know, Paul was attempting to move the gospel to the north. He wanted to. He wanted to go up there. But the Holy Ghost stopped him. I could get into a long discourse. Everybody's going, I know you can. About how the Holy Spirit did that. Some have suggested that Paul received a word of prophecy that told him not to go. Possible. Some believe that the Lord used his illness to keep him from going. Whatever the means. My biggest question is why did the Holy Spirit forbid him? I don't care what means or how he did it. I want to know why he did it. Why did the Lord forbid them to preach the gospel in those areas? Doesn't the scripture tell us that it's not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance? Huh. I think the answer is obvious. They weren't ready. They weren't ready. Paul was ready. And Paul was a type of man in the Lord that when he set his mind to do something, he would do it. He was going. I mean, remember, they warned him. Remember when Agabus came and said, hey, the man who wears this is going to, if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be in chains. And Paul said, I'm ready to be in chains and to suffer death if I have to. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. So I tend, if anybody wanted to put, you know, get me to put my thumb down on what I really thought, how the Holy Spirit did, I think the Holy Spirit used an illness on Paul. I really do. I think he used it to keep him from going there because Paul was of the same of the type of person. He just, it would have taken something drastic to get him not to go because he was set on doing it, just like he was set on trying to win the Jews, even though every time he did it, he got in trouble. You know. But my point really is, is that they weren't ready. That area, that area of Asia, it just wasn't ready. And so often we think that there always is, you know, we need to pray you know, and, and I would tell you this, even when you have people that you're trying to win to Christ, pray first for them. You know, the Bible says very clearly, it says, you know, on some have compassion making a difference. On others, saved by fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments that are spotted by the flesh. We need to be able to use both. We need to be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, he tells Timothy, do it you know, when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. In season, out of season is what it says. But that's what it means. But we need to pray first. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit goes before us and that he preps that ground. You know, it's just like when, when I was putting my garden in. You know, I went out there and I, towed, I tilled it up, uh, spread a lot of manure. We, we did what we had to do, tilled that in, got it all ready. And then when the time was right, you know, when the frost was passed, we, we, we made the rose and we got it. And now we've got lots of tomatoes and we've got lots of green beans. We have to prep the ground before we sow the seed. 
this area was not ready to hear what, the, what Paul was ready to teach, and, and yet the Holy Spirit just simply directed them in a different way. And that's perfectly okay. Where the Holy Spirit directs us to plant, there will always be fruit. And that's really what it is. And that fruit will always remain, as you remember it says in John 15, 16. So it's the fruit that the Holy Spirit desires. God desires fruit. He wants to see Christians produce other Christians. I've always find it funny because a lot of times I'll ask Christians, you know, what is the fruit of a Christian? And they'll say, love, peace, joy, long I said, no, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What's the fruit of a Christian? And a lot of them have a hard time. So I always tell them, I say, well, if I went up to an orange tree, I would get what? Oranges. Get apples off an apple tree. You should get Christians off a Christian tree. We should produce fruit. This is what the Lord wants us to do. And we will as long as he's the one directing us and we're open to his leading. Look at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed, he prayed him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately he endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. Paul has this night vision. He has a dream or a night vision, however you want to put it. And he sees this man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then the text says, immediately we endeavored. You see the word we there? Mark it. We know that the writer of the book of Acts is Luke the physician. Luke is the one that wrote it. This is the first time that he uses a plural pronoun of we. It's the first time that we've got there. We're better than halfway through the book of Acts. And it's the first time that he's used the term we. Well, that's significant because this is where apparently he met Luke at. This is where Paul joins up with Luke. Luke becomes part of his entourage, if you will. And he even says that, you know, we essayed uh, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us, you see that, to preach the gospel. And so Luke becomes a part of the whole thing that Paul's doing, and he becomes. Now, some people have said, well, um, the reason that he hooked up with, with uh, Luke was because Paul was a sickly sort. We know from church history this is probably true. Paul had some health problems. He did have moments when he was sick, and that being on a missionary journey, he needed a doctor. I have no doubt that that's probably partly true. It's always nice to have a doctor in a family, you know what I mean? <laughs> they, 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 they get hounded a lot, but they, it's nice to have one, right? and I did have one. But that's probably, it's partially probably true. Some other Bible teachers believe that, that Luke was actually the one Paul saw in the vision who was saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Possible. We don't know for a fact. But the fact is, is this is where he met him at. And this is where Luke begins now to you know, use these complex pronouns where he's talking about us and we. And so they're going to preach the gospel uh, to this particular area. And, and I think it's just absolutely amazing. When you think about direction, and I'll touch on this before I move in. You know, it says that Paul had this night vision. I have to admit, you know, I've been in the ministry for, I don't know, pushing 40 years. And I have never in my life ever had a vision. I've never had some strange dream that wasn't motivated by pizza the night before. 
I haven't had any strange audible voices that I know of. Uh, every direction that I have, that I've ever gotten, I've gotten from the Word of God. I just have. I'm not belittling those type of things. I'm not saying that they don't happen. I'm saying that I think the Lord knew me well enough to know that I don't put a lot of stock in those things because they're too easy to second guess. On this particular occasion, of course, obviously, he leads Paul this way and directs him. But for me, my personal, I've always had the Word of God. I've asked people, I've had people ask me, well, how did you know your calling in the ministry? And I said, wow, that's a toughie because I've really always, from the time I can remember, probably from the moment I was old enough to remember, I've always had this feeling that God had his hand on me for some reason. Uh, doesn't mean I did anything right because I did plenty of stupid stuff the whole time. But it is interesting how the Lord, through my life, every now and then I would always run into some Christian, some on-fire Christian, who would constantly get up in my grill and tell me that I needed to get my life straight with the Lord. You know? And so it was different people at different times coming to me. And then when I was ripe for the picking, he sent a particular man, and I finally gave in. And then through a process of things... And the Word of God, you know, I found myself in the ministry. It wasn't really something that I sought after. A lot of people do. Uh, I can honestly say I never did. I just found myself doing it, and I was very fulfilled in it. And God blessed it. So, you know, a lot of times uh, when it comes to the leading, uh, how God directs, uh, God is not limited to the means that He uses. Uh, he can use any means, and by this particular time, He uses this vision in Paul's life but I have to admit, as far as I'm concerned, in my own life, I, I've never had such a thing. But uh, uh, obviously the Lord does do those things. Look at verse 11. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samaracia, uh, and the next day to Neapolis. So just as a quick thing here, you know, Paul makes this interesting trip, and he sets out for Macedonia, and he heads straight for Neapolis. And which is the port city of Philippi. And it's, uh, it only takes him two days to do this, which I find is kind of interesting. Uh, why? Because later on he makes this same trip and it takes him five days. But this time, it only takes two days. What does that tell me? To me, I think it's very evident that if the Lord has you doing something and the Holy Spirit's the one directing your path, the wind's to your back. You know what I'm saying? The winds in your favor. So he had good winds when they were sailing. And they made it in two days flat. But, but later on it takes him five days. Sometimes we can be endeavoring to serve the Lord and the winds are with us. I, I know this from personal experience. Everything seems to be going our way. I mean, nothing that we do is out of the way. Everything's blessed. But then there comes those times when it seems like the wind is blowing in the opposite direction or you're rowing upriver and you're going, man, Lord, what is going on? And so often it'll be at those particular times that people will begin to think that I'm out of the will of the Lord. Maybe I'm out of the will of God. And I don't think it necessarily means that at all. Sometimes where there's great opportunity. There will always be great opposition. Sometimes the opportunity brings the opposition itself. 
doesn't mean that God's against you, but simply there is an opposition that doesn't want to see what God is going, because God's going to prevail. The gates of hell is not going to prevail again. God's going to get you there. It's going to happen, but it doesn't mean it will be without trial sometimes. So sometimes we feel like everything's going our way, the wind's at our back and smooth sailing, but then sometimes the waves get rough. But it doesn't mean we're out of the will of God. Sometimes it just means that there is a great opposition ahead. Look at verse 12. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city, part uh, of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. So Philippi was a Roman colony, as we all know, the, uh, and it was of historical uh, importance. This is the, uh, for history buffs, this is the city where Mark Anthony fought Brutus, and they had a crucial fight there, and, and uh, as most people know. So Paul and his gang are in this whole new area where they're going into Greece and really into Europe, and it was a very different than the Asian culture uh, where they were going to go. So it could, but it really doesn't, it doesn't seem that they did much in this particular area. It's kind of more like they were just doing R&R at this particular time. In verse 13, and on the Sabbath, make note of that. On the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer, make note of that, was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake with the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia... A seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So Paul, they get there, and there is no synagogue. There's no synagogue. How do I know that? Because all these Jewish women were down by the river making prayers. Had it been, it was on the Sabbath. Had there been a synagogue, they would have been at the synagogue. It took 10 Jewish males in any town to constitute a synagogue. If there was 10 Jewish males in that town, they would establish a synagogue. They just would. Now, they would go down to the river or any body of water that they had and they would make these sabbatical prayers. They would do these Sabbath prayers. And so Paul goes down there and he's looking, no doubt I think he's probably looking to see if there's any other men, which he doesn't find any. He finds nothing but women. And so he finds Lydia. And so they sit down and what's he do? He teaches, he preaches, they get saved. And that's great. Now, there are those who have used this story to try to justify something that just isn't justifiable. And what I'm talking about is they, they try to wind up making Lydia a rabbi in this, okay? They say, well, she was down there leading the thing. No, she was praying, okay? She was praying. The Jews would never, ever, <laughs> ever allow a female to be a rabbi. But there are those in Christendom who think that Lydia is an example of a female pastor. No, it's not. You know, the ordination of women pastors is just unscriptural. There's no 
precedent for it in Scripture. Quite the contrary. So often people will point to Deborah. They say, well, what about Deborah? I say, what about Deborah? She was one of the best judges that Israel ever had. But what wasn't she? She wasn't a priest. Why? You remember Saul? When Saul, the king, tried to operate in the office of a priest? Remember? Got himself in a little bit of a pickle, didn't he? Why? Because God frowns on that. God has a particular office for particular people and a particular authority given to those. And to step outside of that is wrong. Even in our own denomination, the hierarchy of the United Methodist Church finds it quite easily to ordain women anymore. They never used to. They have no scripture for it except that which is taken out of context and twisted. They'll often point to John Wesley. And I think this is interesting because, you know, they point to John Wesley and they say, well, John Wesley, even in the 1700s, licensed women preachers. I said, wow. I'm shocked that he had to license them because there's nothing wrong with women preachers. You know, people get this thing mixed up, and I just want to make sure that we're clear on this. The Bible, Jesus gave the Great Commission to whom? The disciples, which consisted of what? Men and women. And he said, go and preach the gospel, right? So the Great Commission is given to all disciples to go and preach the gospel. It's this area of pastoring that we have a little issue with. And I think probably coming from a Jewish perspective, it's why I don't have a problem with it. I don't understand why the Jewish or the Gentile church does. They're being very disobedient because Paul is very clear when you look at the scriptures, especially 1 Timothy chapter 3, why. He even gives the reason why that they don't permit it. But they point to John Wesley and say, well, John Wesley, well, John Wesley was, was not a, he, you do realize John Wesley wasn't a United Methodist, right? He was one of the founders of Methodism. But him and his brother Charles, and, 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 you can, and I encourage you to check the history on this. They never intended to start a Methodist church. Did you know that? They were both ordained Anglican ministers. Both of them. And John had, and, and Charles had grown up in a huge family of children. Like 15, I think they had her what was it? There was 10 survived, but how many, uh, how many, 19? 19 kids. So his mom was pretty busy, okay? And so there was 19 kids, 10 of them survived. But, you know, girls and boys, and she taught all of them, homeschooled them, <clears throat> which was unusual for the time because a lot of people would not educate their girls, but she did. And so it was this methodical way that she taught the kids that set in the mind of John Wesley when he became a, a, a minister in the Anglican Church and even his brother Charles. He, he looked to that. So when they started this club, which other people as a derogatory term called it the Holy Club, because what these guys were doing was gathering around similar to what we do around the Word of God and they would simply encourage each other to keep in prayer you know, to, but they had a, a method as to how to do it. You know, they kind of wanted to come up with this system, okay? So they called it Methodism. 
But it was more of a philosophy. It really wasn't, they never intended it to be a church. Uh, what they would do is go into a, an area and they would tell, they would gather people and they would set up small groups. Sound familiar? He would set up these small groups of people and he would even tell them, don't distract from the normal church services in town. So wherever you're going to church at, continue to go. Hold your meetings on an off night. Come to somebody's house around the Bible and do your prayers, do your things. And then, you know, you can go out and you can feed the poor, whatever you want to do. That's what he meant to do. And so they would commission preachers. Some of them were women. Why? Because it's totally legit. Matter of fact, it took them years and years and years before they ordained, which I think is funny, the first deaconess. Well, I can show you deaconesses in the Bible. There's not a problem with female deacons. They're there. What there's not there is female pastors. So to use John Wesley, who never ordained a female pastor, to use him as a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? As their excuse to, for what they do, it's just not right. And to point to Lydia in our text and to make her out to be something that she was not is not accurate. It's not good. Listen, Lydia was not a rabbi because she couldn't do it. It's not an ability question. So often women, when we discuss these type of things, will take the defense on it. Well, are you saying a woman can't do that? Absolutely not. I've known all kinds of women. My wife is a very bright woman and knows the Word of God. And, you know, would she be able to do that? I'm sure she has the ability. What she does not have is the authority. And that's the problem. It's not an ability question. It's an authority question. That's why Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Talking about in the church, as a pastor, I do not permit a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over a man. The word usurp there means to take something that is not rightfully yours. That's what it means. So this issue, we look at the church and we look at how powerful the early church was. They walked in the spirit. Why? Because they walked according to the word of God. And we see so much liberalism and so much people and they just walk away from you point a verse out and it's like, oh, well, we don't really care because, you know, what, what about Deborah? Well, Deborah was a judge. She, wasn't a, she had nothing to do with the spiritual life of Israel. That was given to the sons of Aaron. It was given to the priesthood. She pulled no priestly duty. Well, what about Lydia? Well, Lydia was a seller of purple. Lydia was down there with the rest of the woman selling, you know, making prayers. So these arguments are unscriptural and are unfounded. And they're taken completely out of context. Lydia was a good woman. But when she went down there, she was not a rabbi. Not because she couldn't be. She just didn't have the authority to be. It really is just that simple. But John and Charles, and even George Whitfield to some extent, I would encourage you, go back and read. Study. Study the history of those guys. They're good, good men. They met well in a lot of areas. Didn't have everything right, but none of them did. You know, they, everybody had something, you know. So, but, but it was interesting how they looked at those things. Look at verse 16. And it came to pass, as, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed of a spirit of divination met us, which brought her master such, uh, much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul on us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And 
This did she many days. Take note of that. She did it many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that same hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them unto the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which we are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up against, uh, together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. I've told you a million times, and I will repeat it over and over again. Wherever there's great opportunity, there's going to be great opposition. Always. The opposition rises against Paul in this particular, in his entourage this time, is of a little different sort. It's this young woman who's possessed by a spirit of divination. And she begins following them around, proclaiming the truth. She's saying absolutely what the truth is. She's just doing it loud, and she's doing it incessantly. And she's doing it for days on end. To the point where Paul rebukes her and calls this demon out of her and actually winds up delivering this young woman. I heard a guy say one time that this lady was probably the best advertisement that Paul had ever gotten. And to which the guy who was preaching said, yeah, true, but Paul didn't want the devil doing his advertising agency. You know, he, did, he didn't want him running it. Why? Because even the truth, if it's said the wrong way at the wrong time, can be troublesome. And so she wasn't trying to, and I really believe wholeheartedly that all the enemy was trying to do was to bring attention to these men, okay? To bring attention to them, unwanted attention to them. And uh, because he, you know, listen, Satan walks about as a roaring lion seeking who he may have devoured. But I always emphasize he walks about. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not everywhere at the same time. He is a created being. So if he's not here in America, he's probably over in Japan somewhere. He's, he's somewhere. You know, even when he came before the throne, you read in the book of Job, and he says, and the Lord asked him where you've been. He says, walking to and fro throughout the earth. So he walks, okay? But he has minions, and they're everywhere. And they've been around for a long time, and they keep track and, uh, you know, on uh, men and women of God, too. And so no doubt that they had seen what Paul had been going through. And I just believe that it was just them trying to use the truth, you see, to inflict, uh, you know, pain or even opposition to Paul and Silas and the rest of them in Luke by doing such a thing. To the point where finally Paul just realizes, because evidently he didn't realize in the beginning, because had he realized this woman was possessed, I'd like to think, and I'm pretty sure he would have, he would have taken care of it firsthand. But he didn't. It took him a few days. Why? Because he realized after a while, because why? She was saying the truth. These are the men of the Most High God who show us the way of salvation. You know, Paul was probably trying to stay humble the whole time while this woman was singing the praises over top of them. You understand what I'm saying? But after a few days of that, he's going, wait a minute, this ain't God. 
And he turns around and he rebukes this thing and it comes out of her, <coughs> which upsets her handlers to the point where they drag these guys out and the next thing you know, they're arrested. They're in the middle of the stockade. These prisons, and I hesitate because I worked at a prison, but I, I hesitate to even call them prisons. They were dungeons. They were in the inner dungeon, the keep, which was the nastiest part. And you, you can't even imagine how bad it is. I mean, a normal prison's bad enough. Even at Iowa State Prison, we would stand up there in a the guard tower at nighttime and watch those river rats. And I'm talking rats that were, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, they were huge. They looked like cats. Uh, I'm a California boy, and I just, just, I'll throw this in. I'll try to get done quick just to show you. I was sitting out by the prison one day, and I was eating my lunch. And I, I didn't have duty that day, but I just, I used to go in and play cards. I'm sitting out there, and it was, uh, the, the river was real close. So I'm sitting by the river on my car, in the hood of my car. And I look over, and there's this possum, okay? And I thought, wow, that's cool. There's a possum. So I start flicking my french fries, and the possum's sitting there. He's eating them. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I was going, wow. My friend shows up. He pulls his car up on the other side. And when he shuts it off, he comes, well, I went, no, we're like, be quiet. He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm feeding a possum. And he slides over the hood and he looks over and he goes, oh, Doug, that's not a possum. That's a river rat. This thing was huge. I, never, I didn't know a rat could get that big. My point being, they live in prisons. They like that. This part where Paul and Silas found themselves was a nasty part of the thing. Rats big as your arm, okay? Bugs. And the, the sad part was, was that in order to make your punishment even worse, they would fasten your feet in the stocks, which means you couldn't run from the rat. You couldn't even crawl in the corner. You couldn't go from corner to corner to get rid of it. And if they had beaten you, which meant you probably had the smell of blood on you, it wasn't a good situation. It was a bad situation. At that particular time, we see verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Midnight. I think this is interesting. Why? Why, does it, why was it midnight? Because midnight is the darkest portion of the night. It's, it's darker than, from that moment on, it begins to get daylight, you see. But midnight's the darkest point. It's the darkest hour of the night. Here were these two great men of God. Prisoners locked in the stocks. Dungeon. No light. Not knowing what rats are in there, what bugs are in there. They could have given in to the despair. Having been beaten... They're wounded, they've been mocked, they've been arrested, they're in the worst place possible. It's the darkest hour of the night. And they begin to sing praises unto God. I don't know about you, but I know what it feels like at that hour of night to be in a bad place in your life. Now, I've never experienced a prison cell. I've never experienced nothing to their degree, but I've had that moment in my life when it seemed like the darkest hour. And at those points in your life, it's easy to give in 
to despair and to the thoughts that should never enter anybody's mind of giving up, of getting out. But these guys chose to sing praises unto the Lord and, and the inmates, the prisoners heard them. Now see, I, mean, I think that's significant. The prisoners heard them. They sang praises unto the prisoners heard them. When it's that bad and it's that dark, when we sing unto God, we don't only lift our soul and our spirit, but we lift the spirit and the soul of those around us that hear us. They see how we are. They see the turmoil. They see that we are men of like passion. They understand that we're normal people, but we have something that maybe they don't. And we begin to sing the praises of Jesus Christ. We begin to cry unto him. And we begin to extol him and to lift him up. And they hear that. And not only are our lives changed. And we are reassured that even at that darkest moment, God is with us. Jesus is still on the throne. The Holy Spirit is still directing we are simply experiencing opposition, but we can praise the Lord during that particular time. And it's the people around us who will see that. And they too will come to know Jesus. That's what we pray. Read ahead. It only gets better. It's very powerful. Father, we love you. And we thank you, Lord, even for the darkest point of the night. Father, we agree with the apostle when he said we glory in tribulation, Lord. Because it's at those weak points of our lives, Lord, Father, that you show yourself to be strong in mercy and grace and deliverance, Lord. Father, I pray for those who hear this sermon. And I pray, Lord, Father, that those who are suffering at this particular time, that they would hear us sing about Jesus Christ and the good news that we have in him, even though we are men of like passion, we have been through like circumstances, and we have been through the trial and the tribulation and the turmoil of this life, Lord Father, but we have been lifted above that by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. I know that somebody listening to this broadcast, Lord Father, is going through that. Father, touch them. And let them know how much you love them and how much you want to lift them above the circumstance. We thank you for all that you do, all that you are doing, and all that you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen.